delighted to be joined by Robert Peel. Robert is a history teacher and joint head teacher at the West London Free School and a successful author. He's also worked for the think tank Civitas, where he published his first book and as a teacher in residence at the Department for Education, working, a, working as a policy advisor and speechwriter. Robert is the author of Knowing History, a series of Key Stage 3 textbooks published by Collins. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Robert. My pleasure. Thanks, Max. Brilliant. So a bit about the structure quickly. We'll start with uh, six opening questions, uh, more, more sort of general questions about becoming an author. Um, then we'll move on to your top three tips. Um, and then we'll finish with a question that's submitted by the ISN community. Super. So the first question I have, um, opening question, uh, why should educators think about writing or becoming an author? I think for a educator, it's a really um, complimentary second career to have. Uh, when you're teaching, it's very sociable, very human, uh, which is why we all love it, but also as a result, very intense. And with a school timetable, you have very little autonomy over your day. Uh, writing is the exact opposite. You're on your own, you kind of make your own schedule. And I found myself that the two different jobs complement each other really well. Um, uh, when I get to the end of, say, a, a half term or a holiday where I've been doing quite a lot of writing, I've kind of, you know, been slowly turning mad with my own company and really welcome going back into the classroom and vice versa at the end of a long busy term. Kind of retreating to my study and doing a bit more writing is a really nice um, sort of yin to the yang of teaching. Brilliant. And how easy is the journey to, to sort of getting getting published? I can only really speak for uh, my own experience with knowing history. Um, and for us, it was quite it was quite straightforward. Uh, but that's because we went to the publisher with something um, which was more or less the finished article. I say we because Knowing History is also published alongside Knowing Religion. So there's a history and religion resource that are written uh, along the same lines, essentially, and basically part of an extended series for Collins. Um, and the reason we were able to do that is our school was new in 2011 and myself and the head of religion both joined in 2014. Um, so we only had four year groups to teach. So we were able to focus um, very much on key stage three, which is um, the age group that our books are published for. So we were able to go to Collins with um, some things which looked pretty similar to what the final resource is now. And we had had a, we'd had a tip off from uh, someone who worked in publishing that Collins were looking for resources similar to the ones that we, we had been creating. Um, so it all actually happened surprisingly quickly. Uh, but I'm not, I, I know that other people go through much more protracted experience of it. So I think it's very dependent on the kind of the resource you're writing and the, the context that you're in. And how should potential authors um, sort of think about who their audience might be when, when they first start writing? Um, I think, well, we, with school books, it's quite straightforward in terms of, well, particularly in the British context, I know lots of international schools uh, follow this, you have your different key stages, so it's quite clear what age group you're writing for. Um, in terms of checking that it's suited to them, I would say to any teacher who's thinking of writing, just um, never neglect the fact that you have a a focus group of 30 pupils in front of you every day when you go to work um, and you have a real privilege of being able to test anything that you're writing on them 
uh, road test it and see what uh, what's working and what isn't. Um, you'll already, as a teacher, have a real sort of instinctive idea for what will work and what won't. But having the opportunity to try things in the classroom in their early stages is, I mean, it's fantastic. And I I found that that's basically what we did for a couple of years with knowing history. Um, and you, uh, we really benefited from the insights that actually road testing the resources in the classroom offered. But also, I think the pupils benefited from the passion and dedication of our teaching because when you've poured all of those hours into a resource you're you're going to deliver it with quite a lot of welly in my experience um so yeah i think working in a school whilst also writing resource can be mutually beneficial for, for both pupils and viewers and author is it is it sort of based on what you said there is it is it very much um sort of testing out what what you said uh or sort of what you're planning to write um to to the audience um, that you're going to be writing for as you go during that planning phase and, and sort of testing that with students? I think in terms of what you're going to write, that wasn't particularly student-led. That was very much led by us and then latterly the publisher and deciding what the content is going to be. Um, but when you actually have a first draft, it's more just making sure that all of the different parts of that work well. Um, uh, we, we, we're doing second editions of Knowing History at the moment, and I would certainly say that we're expanding the content, um, uh, almost doubling the size of the books. And I'll say some of the new content that we're putting in has come from what we've heard from students about things that they would like to be learning in the history classroom. But I think it's much more useful in terms of this sentence works, this paragraph doesn't, there's not enough on this, there's too much on this that was completely irrelevant and wasn't actually that helpful for their understanding. It's that more granular level of what you want to include in the um, in the resource. Great. And how, how should potential authors ensure they are considering non-native English speakers when writing? You just got to keep it simple. And when you're, my, my advice for anyone writing for children is if you have a sort of inner Hilary Mantel or inner James Joyce and some literary flair that you want to find an avenue for it, writing resources for school-aged pupils is not going to be it. Now that's not to sound really depressing and say that you've got to dumb everything down if you're writing for a school. Um, I wouldn't say that's the case at all. In fact, I think that um, I've written things for a sort of adult audience and for a uh, um, school-based audience and I always find the latter far more intellectually challenging because you are constantly having to think about a how will a, a pupil receive this information and b as you say a non-native speaker so I think much more systematically about sentence construction and syntax um, when writing for that sort of audience than for an adult audience um, and the sorts of things that you can do to keep your prose simple and easy to comprehend will be really beneficial for non-native speakers, but also for anyone who struggles with uh, reading for whatever reason. Um, and the school where I teach in Hammersmith, it's obviously in London, uh, but we have a lot of students for whom English is an additional language. Uh, and we have a lot of students uh, with special educational needs and being able to make sure that the book isn't pitched exclusively to such pupils yet remains accessible to them. Um, yeah, it's certainly something that we that I've thought about and refined a lot whilst whilst writing the series. Great. And, and before you begin the writing process, um, do, do you have a very clear idea about the purpose of your piece when you start? 
or does that sort of tend can that evolve as well um when i think when i first started writing uh, the history textbooks i didn't have a very clear purpose and i would allow it to evolve and i don't think that was actually the best approach um and in writing the second editions where we've expanded it uh, I brought on two more authors, so there are three of us um, who've written the second editions of the books. And one of the things that we decided from the start was we would always start every unit with a really clear inquiry question, which is not something that I had done previously, but it actually lent much more structure and a much better uh, guidance as to what should be included in every unit. Um, I think working it out as you go along, again, it's going to muddy the waters. If, if you're trying to work it out as you're writing something, heaven knows how, how a student's going to feel. Um, so I think going into something where you have a really clear idea of what the, um, yeah, what the inquiry question is, what the learning outcomes are, um, it, it's crucial. Right. And, and what, what exciting opportunities um, does sort of being an author um, offer? I think similarly to what I was saying at the start about teaching uh, being quite intense and being um, a job where you, due to the timetable of school day, don't have a great deal of autonomy over your time. Uh, being an author as well as a teacher is really, um, really beneficial in slightly counteracting that. So one of the things that's unusual about being a teacher is you're so often at the same place. You're, you, you go into the same school for 195 days a year. Um, to teach and having another string to your bow like writing whilst you would never want it to completely uh, take you away from the classroom it does give you a few more opportunities to go and meet colleagues at other schools and see other schools um, uh, before COVID having written knowing history meant that I would go to the historical association conference every year um, and, uh, and I greatly miss them when they, they they didn't occur for the last three years uh, because that was always just such a wonderful reason to go there and meet hundreds of history teachers from around the country and from abroad um, and uh, similarly writing the textbooks allowed us to apply for a um, for a grant from the Department for Education to implement our Key Stage 3 history curriculum in nine other schools across the country, everywhere from sort of Dorset to Manchester, uh, East Anglia, Bedford, and myself and the head of history at my school um, took a group of schools each and went and visited them uh, at points throughout the year. And that gave us an amazing opportunity to form some really strong uh, working relationships with history teachers at other schools, uh, it's always just fascinating to see something that you use in your context has been picked up by someone else and implemented differently, but uh, by no means worse, often better. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a really nice opportunity to do what teachers often are unable to do, which is um, go and see other schools and see other contexts. Wonderful. And I suppose it really just it broadens your network, doesn't it, when you're sort of digging into a particular focus and area, like, like you said, it sort of allows opportunities to network with people all over the country and, um, and, and expand those opportunities for yourself too. Yeah, and you know, having that sort of network is just so helpful once you, um, uh, once your career starts to develop. Um, I think now we're forever recruiting a history teacher uh, for the, um, the school where I'm now joint head teacher, we really won't struggle because I've just got such a great sense of different history teachers across the, in London and across the country. 
Um, and if you're just looking for, if you're teaching a new unit, you know, a school that has taught it themselves, um, if you're trying to trial an idea, you've got a sort of network of people you can go out to. Um, yeah, it's invaluable. Brilliant. Now, moving on to your sort of top, top three tips um, for, for writing. It'd be great if we could uh, go into your, your, first, your first top tip. Um, yeah, so my first tip for uh, writing for pupils is use concrete examples to illustrate abstract ideas. Um, this is a tip that I first gained from a uh, American cognitive psychologist called Daniel Willingham, who wrote a book entitled Why Don't Children Like School? And I think it's probably, I think it's one of the best, best books that any uh, teacher could read um, and also has lots of insight for a teacher who wants to go into uh, authoring resources. Um, and a lot of the book is how we, uh, about how we have, overcomplicated teaching with ambitious ideas of child-centered learning, which often, despite being very idealistic in their intent, fail and leave students frustrated and with the impression that learning is difficult. Uh, and a big emphasis that Daniel Willingham has is the difference between novices and experts. Um, we often expect pupils to learn like experts uh, in a subject and neglect the fact that they are in fact novices coming to content for the very first time. And one big difference between novices and experts is experts are very comfortable with abstractions because when they hear an abstract term like tyranny, they have five or six different examples from their prior knowledge that they can draw upon to think about. Whereas novices, that's not necessarily um, going to be the case. So um, just to give some examples, um, you, if, you're, if you're writing about medieval kingship, uh, and you're writing about the belief that they were ordained by God. That's a very abstract idea that students are going to struggle with. However, if you give them the concrete um, illustration of the idea for touching for a king's evil, where a, king was, a king's touch was thought to cure diseases like the skin disease scrofula, and, and medieval subjects would line up to have the king's hand placed upon them and believe that that would cure them of their illness. That's a very concrete illustration of what could be quite a difficult idea to understand. Um, something more contemporary, if you're teaching about the American, uh, uh, African American civil rights movement, talking about lynching or extrajudicial killing um, will seem a bit abstract. But if you give a very uh, tangible story, a very concrete story, like the murder of Emmett Till in 1955, you'll have a very concrete sort of way that pupils can understand that. Um, my last sort of example for it, something that occurred to me whilst I was writing the textbooks is pupils always want you to put a number on it. Whenever you're talking about a phenomenon in history, they'll always say, well, how many? You know, they'll say, uh, how many people lived there? Or how many people were killed? Or so if you're teaching about the bubonic plague devastating Europe's population, you've got to say how many? And in history, often it's anyone's guess and no one really knows, but I think it's really important to still try and find what the best estimate is for the bubonic plague, it's between a third and a half and put it in your resource because that will immediately help pupils think about its impact in a more um, in a more concrete way. More context, I suppose, for, for the student themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your second your second top tip. Robert. So uh, my second top tip is uh, don't try and put too much flair into your writing in a way that may distract and confuse your pupils. Uh, again, this uh, I mentioned this sort of briefly when I say if you have sort of literary aspirations, 
you might need to rein them in a bit if you're writing for a school-based audience. And this may sound very depressing, but uh, as I said, I think it's just as interesting and intellectually stimulating to work out how you can write something in a way that um, uh, an 11 or 12 year old or a teenager will understand as it is writing for an adult audience. Um, so to give a few a few examples of things that uh, I've learned over the process of writing a lot for, for pupils. Um, one is start sentences with the main clause. If you start with a subordinate clause, when you're reading that in classrooms, you'll see pupils struggle with it. So just to give an example, um, if you're teaching about the Battle of Waterloo and Napoleon, you could have a sentence that says, despite being seriously ill on the day of the battle with a stomach upset, Napoleon retained overall command of the French army at the Battle of Waterloo. Now, a pupil is going to find that first part of the sentence difficult because they haven't yet reached the main clause and they don't realise what it's, what's happening. Um, it may be more elegant to write it in that way, but it's better for a student to write Napoleon retained overall command of the French army at the Battle of the Waterloo, despite being seriously on the day with a battle with a stomach upset. See, it's a small difference, but it's the sort of thing that you will notice will ease pupil understanding um, when they're trying to engage with the resource that you've created. Um, another one is uh, one adjective will do. So uh, you often want to you've got so much that you want to communicate to students when you're writing something that you pack too much in. And again, it's going to lead to cognitive overload for uh, students. Novice learners, they're trying to deal with lots of new ideas at one time. So say, for example, you're writing about Adolf Hitler towards the end of World War II. You could have a sentence saying towards the end of the war, Hitler became increasingly erratic, paranoid and unpredictable. However, Erratic, paranoid and unpredictable. There are three quite big ideas you're going to have to unpack for an 11 or 12 year old whilst you're reading through that. Just go with one. Decide what the most important point for your sentence is and just go with paranoid. OK, and that will be more fruitful because they will gain more understanding from digging deeper into that one word than having their attention spread too thinly between three. And you'll often find, I mean, this goes for writing for any audience, when you pile up adjectives like that, a lot of them are sort of synonymous or slightly synonymous um, and you can start shedding some of them um, which sort of brings me on to the last point which is word count I think it's uh, vital to always make sure that your prose is distilled to its sort of bare essence and um, needless adjectives or um, overly wordy sentence construction is is is, is whittled out um, the, the textbooks that I've written, knowing history textbooks, they have a very sort of set structure where every unit is always around 800 words. And my process, uh, and when, when I brought on the two other authors, the process I recommended to them was always write 25% over your word count and then distill it and whittle it down. Uh, so I always aim to write about 1,000 words and then whittle it down to 800. And that always meant that the final product was much tighter and much more distilled than um, than if I always just aimed straight for the word count and ended up with something a bit baggier. So third tip is, uh, again, potentially counterintuitive for passionate educators, but what you find interesting and what will interest pupils can often be very different things. Um, and this is, again, uh, this thing that Daniel Willingham writes about, difference between novice and expert learners is often a knowledge deficit. 
you find things interesting in a topic that you're teaching because you've studied it. You've studied it maybe to degree level and you've got a really rich knowledge base to draw upon and find all of these little details fascinating. Um, and, and it's going to be totally different for the pupils. Some things you will find jointly interesting. Some things in history or whatever subjects you teach just are fascinating. Uh, but some things will only be fascinating to you. Uh, to give one example, uh, when I used to teach about the suffragettes, I used a resource um, which mentioned at the end, as a sort of interesting aside, that uh, the radical suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst, surprisingly, just before her death in 1928, stood as a Conservative Party candidate in an election due to her fear of revolutionary communism. Now, I read that and thought, wow, that's fascinating. She was a radical suffragette, one of the most advanced feminists of her age, and but then became a Conservative Party candidate, um, you know, about 10 years after um, achieving votes for women. That's really interesting. Tell that to an 11-year-old means nothing. They, that, that's not surprising to them at all, because they don't, unless they're very advanced, they don't have any preconceptions about feminism within conservatism in 1920. And the fact that she was inspired to do this due to her fear of revolutionary communism, unless they've studied the communist revolution, that's going to make no sense to them either. Um, so you've got to be really careful to make sure that the interesting things that you're put, putting in your book don't require prior knowledge that you can't guarantee that a decent majority of the students will actually have. And, and going through that process, are there other times that um, that's sort of been left in and, and you've sort of struggled to, to sort of relay that information or is that something, how, how would you pick up on that as you go? Is that, um, what, what would be your process there? I think it's, um, you just always, uh, um, you're always, especially if you've written something and you're quite emotionally invested in it and you're using it in the classroom with students, you're always watching their reaction and you're always kind of hoping that your, you know, <laughs> the pearls of wisdom from your book will be kind of appreciated. And when they're not, it can be a bit tough, but then you've got to think, okay, why is that? Why are they not finding that interesting? Um, the funny sort of alternative to that uh, is always the things that they find absolutely fascinating. Um, and you have no expectation that they would. Um, so one thing that I always find with this is anything to do with, in history, with family relations, they find brilliant. Um, you know, Renaissance Italian princes marrying their first cousins, they're going to find that absolutely fascinating. Or, um, you know, kings betraying their uncles, um, uh, sons murdering their mothers, anything like that. I think it's because when you're 11 or 12 years old, you think about your family the whole time, you live with your family, your whole life is still, for the most part, in most cases, directed by your family. Um, so any of that sort of stuff, I've always found pupils really latch onto and remember. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's the benefit of being a teacher and an author is this fact that you can road test things and start to gain more of an instinct of what is going to land and what's going to stick and what is, what's just going to end up being peripheral to their understanding of something. Brilliant. And our final part uh, to the discussion is, is, a, is, a, is a question that's been submitted by a member of the ISN community. Um, and the question is, uh, what does a potential author need to do to ensure their writing is suitable for an international market? Well, in the, um, 
I can ask that first in the context of history, uh, which are obviously the, uh, the resources that I've written. Um, the Knowing History books, when the first editions were published, were predominantly British history. There were six units in each book, and five of them uh, would have a British focus, and just one would have a global focus. Um, and I think we did that always with the hope that we would have a second edition and be able to rebalance it with 50-50 split of British and world history. Um, and that's something that we've done. And the timing for this is absolutely perfect because the second edition is being published on the 12th of September. Um, and we now have, and previously the only international well, world history units we had were on the Crusades, Italian Renaissance and French Revolution. Then we had a 20th century history book, which was more international. That was sort of, you know, uh, communism, Nazism. And, but for the first three books out of the four, just three things on world history. Um, but we now have 50-50 split in each of the books. So we've got new units on birth of Islam, medieval African kingdoms, Mughal India, Edo Japan, um, Aztecs, Mayas, loads of different things. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, so we're hoping that that will give it more of an appeal to an international audience. Um, and, uh, and but, but we're also hoping that it will allow people, teachers in uh, British schools, to teach those sorts of topics with more confidence. Um, I think often when you, uh, for example, Qing Dynasty China, there'll be lots of teachers who'll be thinking that'd be such a helpful thing for our pupils to learn about, but their own knowledge deficit about it and the paucity of decent resources may have inhibited that. So I'm really, really pleased that our books may now enable that. Um, so yeah, content content selection, making sure that uh, it has an international scope in a subject like history, I think is really important. Um, I think lots of the things that previously uh, said about clear expression and clear writing is, is really important as well, so that um, students with English as an additional language can access it uh, just as easily. Um, I think there's probably something to be said for uh, it's the easiest thing to do as an author uh, is to assume knowledge on behalf of your reader. And it's something that if you're writing for an adult audience, you want to do, because one of the enjoyable things about being a reader is, is understanding those illusions and getting those you know, illusions or jokes or whatever they may be that are implicit within a text. But if you're writing for a school-based audience, I don't think you should really be doing that. Um, in particular, if they're sort of cultural reference points that that uh, students outside of the UK just won't really won't really get. Um, there's a, there was a history textbook that I remember using as a um, uh, as a trainee teacher, which was I didn't like it very much. I thought it was a bit dumbed down. I think it wasn't really very aspirational for what students were going to learn. And the chapter on Mary, Queen of Scots was entitled There's Something About Mary. Now, for me, having you know grown up in the sort of early noughties, I got the illusion it made me titter. It was just completely lost on any student who saw it, particularly any student who, you know, uh, from an international context, who wouldn't have watched, you know, American films of the early noughties. So uh, avoiding those sorts of things, I think, is important. It may make you laugh, but it's, it's, it's going to be lost on, on anyone who doesn't get the reference point. 
Brilliant. And, and you mentioned that the, um, the second edition um, is being published um, relatively soon, is, is that? And, and you, how, how have you pulled those resources to sort of gather more of an international context? Is it um, by sort of researching yeah. different key areas? And how, how did you choose those different key regions to sort of bring into to, to the text? Yeah, good question. So it's 12th of September that they're being published and um, they've retained the, the British history units that were in the original first edition. And I brought on two new authors, um, Laura Atkinburt, who is a history teacher in a school in Clapham, and then Robert Self, who is um, the head of history at the West London Free School and wrote most of the first edition of the fourth book in the series on 20th century history. And um, they, they had a much more, to my shame, my historical knowledge has always been quite parochial, quite British Isles based. They had a much better grasp of lots of the topics of world history that uh, I wanted in the second edition. So they have, they've written a lot of uh, those new units. And when we first met and sat down, we had really kind of, you know, really interesting, engaging initial discussions where we literally envisaged a, a map of the world and made sure that each of the units had enough to for us to claim that it had a good sort of global spread. Um, uh, so we, you know, at, at times we thought that maybe there was an overemphasis on on um, on East Asia and not enough on the Middle East. So we brought in more in the 20th century history book about the Middle East and took away one of the uh, Chinese dynasties that we had a unit on. And we did lots of sort of balancing just to try and get the scope right. And then once we'd done that, we divvied up the units for who was gonna write what. Um, it's one of the challenges with history though, is when you're kind of, when you've got the whole of human experience to choose from, you're always gonna be making choices and making sacrifices and, you're always going to create a resource that someone's going to say is 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 lacking in some regard because they have a particular passion about something. But but we tried our very best to make sure that it had a spread that would you know um, suit as wide an audience as possible. Brilliant. Fantastic stuff, Robert. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Some really, really uh, great top tips that I know our members will, will take away and find really, really useful for, you know, whether you're a new writer or a, a writer that's been doing it for a while and maybe wants to publish their own, uh, think about publishing their own textbooks. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, really, really interesting. Pleasure, Max. Yeah, pleasure to talk about it. Thanks. Awesome. Great stuff, Robert. Thank you.